The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, and I have the privilege of welcoming into the studio by distance Dr. Harry Reeder. Dr. Reeder, thank you for joining me. Yeah, Zach, it's great to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. To any of our listeners who are not yet acquainted with Dr. Reeder, he has served for almost 20 years as Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. His in-perspective radio program is broadcast around the country, and his embers to a flame church revitalization ministry has played a significant role in promoting an enduring reformation in Christ's church around the world. He is also a council member of the Gospel Reformation Network, a council member of the Gospel Coalition, a board member of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and an adjunct faculty member at Reform Theological Seminary, Birmingham Theological Seminary, and the aforementioned Westminster Theological Seminary. He holds a Master's of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, and a Doctor of Ministry from Reformed Theological Seminary. And today, we will be discussing his new book, 3D Leadership, Defining, Developing, and Deploying Christian Leaders Who Can Change the World, published earlier this year by Christian Focus Publications. In the book, Dr. Reeder discusses how the Church can once again become a leadership factory and leadership distribution center for the world. And Dr. Reeder, I want to kick off our conversation about the book, talking about the process of writing in general. In this book, who is your intended audience, and what inspired or motivated you to write it? My intended audience, uh, Zach, is uh, specifically leaders of the church, but the church in general, but but specifically the leadership of the church, not so much that it simply contains information about being a good church leader, but really trying to uh, Kindle a vision, which I would say is just reclaiming a vision that the church should have, that it that it develops leaders uh, for the world. But first, we have to reclaim the the ground of defining leadership for the world. There was a period of time where, of course, the world defined leader, the, the, the Christian church defined leadership and infected the world and influenced the world in terms of what is true leadership. But now, I. Think I think it's the other way around. I think the world is defining leadership, and it's infecting and influencing the church. So that was. The, so I'm really aiming to get back to your question. I'm really aiming at the church in general, but specifically church leaders, uh, not just to how to develop better church leaders, but how to develop leaders from the church into and for the world. And as you wrote this book, what source material were you drawing from, and what did your writing process? look like? My writing process was, uh, like most everything else, I preach it before I write it. Uh, now, I'm, I, obviously, I do a lot of writing in my preparation for preaching, but my writing ministry flows out of my preaching ministry. Now, as you, as I, I think is part of what you're trying to get at for your audience, is that um, when that's the case, you have to remember that anything that, anything, if I preach something that can be sold as a book, it was probably 
probably a very lousy sermon. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, but on the other hand, anything that you've preached would probably just make a lousy book if it's transcribed. And in other words, both of these instruments communicate, and there, uh, but there is a little bit of there's a difference between the what some might call the hot medium of preaching and the colder medium of reading. And uh, so you uh, put things together a little bit differently. You know, when you're preaching, you not only have what you prepared, but you have the Spirit of God leading you. And so uh, sometimes while you're preaching and you're interacting and sensing what's going on and the Spirit of God's giving you light on your feet, you can sense that people need another illustration that you hadn't prepared and you're, and then the Lord grants it to you. Or you sense that you've got to park in a certain place and and uh, spend a little bit more time there that you had planned than you had planned in the context of preaching. But uh, that's not so in uh, reading, because in reading, uh, people, uh, when you write a book, people are going to read it, and they can go back and visit something, underline it, and you don't need to be repetitive as you would in a sermon, because they can repeat it themselves if they want to go back and take a look at it. So, but But my writing ministry begins with my preaching ministry. And you see the overlap even in your book as you think about, um, or as I saw the overlap as I was reading your book, as I was thinking about your sermons as well, and just how memorable your writing is and your preaching. I, I did want to mention, I checked my reading log as I was reading this book, and I noticed that I read your book, The Leadership Dynamic, in the spring of 2012 when I was preparing to graduate from college. How would you say this book compares to or builds upon the leadership dynamic that you wrote all those years ago? We decided when the book uh, was uh, the publishing company had said, well, it's kind of run its course. and But we sensed that it hadn't run its course in terms of demand from people. But yet we did sense that perhaps in the years that had transpired, as well as things that had been developed, that uh, while I can do another book on leadership, which I am actually working on, uh, but that, but that this book needed simply this book needed to be restructured. It needed to be made discipleship friendly, and it needed some enlargement and enhancement. So this book is the leadership dynamic with about twenty five to thirty percent new material. It's it's significantly restructured so that the, it's in uh, three parts now. The first part is defining leadership. The second part is developing leaders, and the third part is deploying leaders. And then we also added, to make it very friendly for discipleship uh, uh, of church leaders, of how the church can become a leadership factory and distribution center for leaders from the church into the world, we added uh, some uh, discussion questions at the end of each chapter to uh, further that process. So uh, in a a sense, it's, it's almost a new book, but there's uh, obviously we worked from the material that we had in the leadership dynamic as we restructured it, uh, re, uh, we uh, restructured it and enhanced it and enlarged it and made it a little bit more user and hopefully effective and uh, productive friendly. I, I haven't yet tested uh, whether or not you're successful in making it productive friendly, but as far as user friendly goes, as a reader of both books, I can testify to the fact that 
that the, the 3D leadership, um, I could imagine applying that in a classroom setting or in a discipleship context uh, without quite as much prep work as I would need to bring uh, if I was using the leadership dynamic, which is also an excellent book. So I'm not saying that it's uh, faulty at all, but you, you definitely do a bit more work for, for those of us who have the privilege of walking through this material with other men and women in our churches. In your introduction to the book, you identify that crisis of leadership you've already mentioned, that crisis in the church today, that the church has largely abdicated its responsibility of generating leaders for the world, and in, and in fact has imported unhealthy practices and paradigms from the world in uh, trying to equip or train up leaders for the church. And in, in so doing, you present a stark antithesis, as well as a crucially important relationship between the church and the world. How would you say this relationship flows out of Scripture in helping us to define leadership? It's the contextualization issue, and that Jesus does not allow us, for the sake of purity, to withdraw from the world. He wants the world to get withdrawn from you, and you get the world out of you, but he doesn't want to get you out of the world. In fact, he's very explicit. I want you in the world, but not of the world. I don't want the world to own you from the inside out or from the outside in. But I do, but I don't want you to solve that problem by taking yourself out of the world. Uh, Jesus would have nothing to do with an ongoing concept of a Christian commune. I, I just don't, I think he would utterly reject that. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't places for retreat centers and focus study and things like that. But, but even discipleship of individuals and discipleship of leaders requires being in the world. You know, Jesus uh, discipled his leaders on the road. Uh, now, would he draw them aside to the mountaintop and let's spend some time? Yeah. And so he would draw people aside for a season and for a reason. But his main delivery system of discipleship was in the world. Here, what he would do it, and then he would teach them what they have done. Then he'd go send them to do it, and then he would debrief what they've done. And that's what I think discipleship in general and discipleship of leaders in particular requires. So you're in the world, but not of the world. On the other hand, while you're in the world, you, the idea isn't to become a bohemian Christian, that you're so much like the world, nobody can uh, distinguish you from it. You're different because of the way you live and what you say, but not where you live. You're living in the world, but you are not of the world. And that means that you, the illustration I use in the book is that it's like a boat. Uh, if you take the boat out of the water to preserve it as pristine, well, you've got a pristine boat, but you don't have a useful boat. You might as well not have a boat. The whole point of the boat is to put it in the water. But if you're, but if you don't take care of the boat and the water gets inside the boat, then you don't have a good product then either, because now you, we call that being sunk. And then the boat's at the bottom of the lake. So you don't want the boat out of the lake and you don't want the lake in the boat. And that's the way the Christian is to be. We don't want them out of the world, but we want, but we don't want the world in them. That sinks you and your life and your ministry and everything else. One of the ways that you describe uh, the lake getting into the boat or the world getting into the Christian is the plague of selfism in the church. <laughs> what does the plague of selfism, which I think is pretty self-explanatory, but you can expound on that if you'd like. What does that have to do with leadership? I love the way one, uh, I forgot who it was. It may have been John Piper. I can't remember who it was, actually, but but it's a phrase that I wrote down, and I've just tried to hold to it constantly because it helps me so much. 
much, and that's this. In fact, I just shared it in a gospel opportunity uh, this last week that Jesus has done—God has done much to save you. God gave his only son. God has done much to save you, but he didn't do much to save you to make much of you. He did much to save you, to set you free from you so that you can make much of him. And that's and that's what I think we're losing today. We've got this—we've uh, tried to take the narcissism of a secular humanist age and baptize it with the gospel and offer Jesus on the cross to make something of you instead of kill you. You die to yourself that you might now live unto Christ so that it is not I who lives, but Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the power of the Son of God who gave himself up for me. And so that's what I'm talking about. And you're not going to get Christians that live that way unless we got unless we've got leaders that live that way, teach others to live that way, and model for others. What does it mean to live a surrendered, um, a surrendered life and getting on the cross and dying on it daily to live unto Christ and kill the old man daily? As Jesus says, when he speaks of the unending, relentless love of Christ in, um, in Romans chapter 8, he tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And interestingly, in the context of that, he says, he quotes from the Old Testament, he says, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered all the day long. We die to ourself and the love of Christ sets us free to live unto him, secure in him and significance of being identified with him. The heart of the biblical picture of leadership is really the same uh, concept that's at the heart of the Christian walk and, and Christian holiness and sanctification. That is a dying to self and a living to righteousness and, and putting on of Christ and uh, and walking on paths of righteousness for his namesake as the Spirit impels us and leads us on those paths of righteousness. You also give some approaches to leadership sadly adopted by churches today that are counter to the biblical picture of leadership. Can you open up for us those those three approaches that you highlighted early on in the book? One of the things that uh, I think that uh, happens with the, uh, that we're doing today is we, we, we get caught up in the celebrityism of the world. Maybe I can put it this way. Uh, you know, we are, we're, we, we, we applaud celebrity leadership. Now, let me be very clear. If God uses a leader, people are going to talk about how God is using that leader. And so that's perfectly understandable. And if someone is effective, then it's going to be acknowledged, it's going to be seen, and they're going to be appreciated. But the notion of celebrity, of the celebrity culture that we live in, ought not to be propagated or perpetuated within the church. But that's what we do. Someone gets converted, and we put them into leadership based on what they were in the world rather than what they are becoming in Christ. And by the way, when we do that to people, we are not, we are not doing them a favor. When we do that with people and, um, and we, you know, we, um, uh, we put them in positions of leadership because of what they were in the world. And now they're in leadership in the church and people come and ask them questions that are, are that are, that are theologically challenging, are sanctification sensitive, all of 
those things, and they don't know how to answer yet. They haven't been trained to answer. They may intuitively got, have some insights, but they're, they're not really trained to do it. And we've got to remember that leadership is not given to people based upon the fact of their conversion. It is given to people based upon their progress in sanctification and their progress in being competent to lead with the with the uh, development of their gifts and the and the um, and their walk, which is to be above reproach, not perfect, but above reproach. And so I think that we set people up for failure uh, by our fascination with the celebrity culture of the day and our basically surrendering to it. And it becomes a qualification by which new converts are put into positions of leadership. The guy that really put me on to that was a guy named that most of your listeners are going to know readily. He's been with the Lord a couple of years, but you'd still know of him. His name was Chuck Colson. And he, he bemoaned the fact that he was automatically um, put in positions where people were asking him questions and he was not ready. Thankfully, in the providence of God, he got connected to John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, and then both of them were able to nurture him along very rapidly so that he made rapid progress. But but that's, um, that's you know, somebody's got quick hands to turn a double play does not mean they're going to be a good Bible teacher or a good elder or a good pastor. The fact that someone can throw and catch a pass, the fact that someone can act in a play, the fact that someone can sing a song and sell a million records, that does not mean that they are, that they are leader quality. Now, if they had leadership in the world, very likely they've got some native leadership gifts that can be nurtured, but it's not a transfer of one-to-one uh, within the church. And speaking of of uh, different views of leadership um, that are extant in the church today and relating that to celebrity culture, you, you write that Christ's incarnational leadership model was rooted in the Old Testament, and yet there are, um, there are leadership gurus in the church that even have attained to celebrity status that, 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 that seem to discount or even wholly write off the importance of the Old Testament. How would you demonstrate your claim that Christ's incarnational leadership was rooted in the Old Testament to men who have even achieved celebrity status for their books on leadership and guidance in those things in the church who want to cast off the Old Testament wholesale? Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't present itself as two Bibles, and you can take one and discard the other. The 66 books of the Bible are not presented in the Bible in an a la carte menu. Which ones do you want to? The, Jesus says, when he gives us the Great Commission, he says to go and teach all that I have commanded you. Well, if you go to the Old Testament, you're going to see this uh, this little pesky phrase, thus saith the Lord. Well, that means Jesus gave us the Old Testament. If Jesus gave us the Old Testament and he is there in type, in shadow, in precept, in prophecy, and um, he is there in symbols, and he is there in narrative, and he is there in theophanies and Christophanies, and he and this, and we are told that God reveals himself through his son, and, and the Old Testament says, thus saith the Lord. So basically, 
basically you're telling Jesus, you may have been relevant then, but you're not relevant now. And then secondly, you're telling the apostle Paul, Paul, I'm just a little bit smarter than you because when Paul was developing leaders, he had one very favorite leader he loved to develop. His name was Timothy. He was like a son. And when he was giving Timothy his, the last thing Paul wrote in his uh, last epistle, as he's placing the mantle of ministry and leadership upon his son, Timothy, he says to him, he says, Timothy, you continue in the things you have learned, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, Paul, developing the leadership of Timothy, tells him, whatever you do, keep being a learner, stay in the scriptures, the same scriptures you learned as a child, that would have been the Old Testament. And by the way, those scriptures are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, the gospel message, while not as clear in the Old Testament, was 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 constantly reverberating in the Old Testament, increasingly manifested in the Old Testament, and abundantly underwriting every work of salvation in the Old Testament, and that's what you're to learn from. That ark was pointing to Jesus. The prophets were pointing to Jesus. The priests were pointing to Jesus. The kings were pointing to Jesus. The peace offerings, the free will offerings, the burnt offerings, that's all pointing to Jesus, which is why Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they bear witness of me. Or wouldn't you like to have been on that leadership training moment on the road to Emmaus where Jesus has a couple of downcast, confused, depressed leaders, and these two men are downcast, and later they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he explained to us the scriptures? And then you go read what it says. It says, beginning with Moses and with the law, beginning with Moses and the law and all the prophets, he explained himself in all the scriptures. So while we would not say every verse and every piece of the Bible is explicitly talking about Jesus, the context, or as we used to say in the South and the textile areas, the warp and woof of the entire Old Testament is the thread of the preeminence of the triune God revealed through the preeminence of Christ, who is our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. So uh, so I would just say to those people who say you don't need the Old Testament or that the Old Testament is getting in the way, then I would say then you don't understand the Old Testament. I, I would say to you that Augustine and others were right, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. After you've you've laid out your argument that it is the church's responsibility to once again uh, define and develop and deploy Christian leaders into the world for service in the world, and you've shown that our great source is the totality of Christian scriptures, Old and New Testaments, our only rule for faith and practice, you then move on to get down to the nitty-gritty of the book, and that is defining what a leader is supposed to do and what a leader is. And what, what do you say? 
say is the core activity of a leader? My definition, and I don't claim I don't claim that it's so glorious to dismiss any and everybody else's, but my definition of leader is simply this that a leader is someone who influences others to achieve a defined mission together. That's what a leader does. A leader influences. Uh, a leader influences others uh, you know, beside themselves, and they influence others to achieve a defined mission. That is, a leader always has an objective. When you're leading, you're lead by definition. You are influencing others, and you're at, to a an objective. You are trying to get them across a defined goal line. So, a leader is moving up others across a uh, to a uh, achieve a defined message and in teaching them and uh, facilitating them to do this together great leaders develop teams of leaders uh, and that's what they do they don't just develop their own leadership team they develop great teams of leaders and those leaders then develop their own teams of leaders and that's exactly what ought to be in, at working in the church are leaders with teams of leaders who have teams of leaders who have teams of leaders and so <clears throat> so that's what um, that's what I really try to promote in the uh, in the lifestyle of of a congregation. As I say to folks, if you meet someone on our staff, you can ask them, so what team of leaders are you on? And they ought to be able to tell you. And then you say to them, and by the way, whose team are you on? And they can tell you. And by the way, the people that are on your team, do they have a team of leaders? And they ought to be able to tell you that that, that's how you're developing this um, leadership factory uh, with that concept of leaders who are in influencing others to achieve a defined mission together. When you talk about achieving a defined mission together, you use the word effectively achieve a defined mission together, and you define that effectiveness as efficiency plus excellence plus economy plus exaltation, and what you flesh that out as right things plus the right way plus the right time plus the right reasons. Um, to our listeners, you'll note that as you read the book, you get all kinds of golden nuggets that if you just remember you know, bits and pieces even, it's going to be useful for you in different contexts. But when we talk about effectively achieving that defined mission, and as we, as a leader influencing others, what ought our interactions with others accomplish at base? How, how ought our influence uh, to affect other people in the achieving of that mission? Okay, so let me back up just a little bit, Zach. Thank you so much for um, bringing that up. I really do appreciate it, because that was, that, was that was a significant moment in my life. Um, it was about 30 years ago, where I, I my life, I grew up, I, my family had a gigantic work ethic is unbelievable. I mean, I turned 14. Next thing I know, I got a Social Security card, and when I, and I had a paper route, and by the time I was 16, my daddy and mother said, punch a clock somewhere. And uh, so I, I, I'm, um, I, this work ethic was there. But, but I, everywhere I worked, I learned efficiency. I remember one of my first jobs was United Parcel Service, and then I was a stevedore on a, um, you know, in the trucking lines, and then um, trying to get my paper route done, and then 
I worked for McDonald's hamburgers. All, all those jobs growing up as a kid that I had was just great. And all of them revolved around efficiency. But then I read a book that really helped me understand, wait, 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 efficiency is great. I mean, you, but you can become the fastest ladder climber in the world. But if you've got your ladder against the wrong wall, that's not very smart. So I, then they, they said, hey, the first principle is effectiveness. Efficiency is being able to do a lot of things, but effectiveness is learning to do the right thing. So the principle of effectiveness, as you said, is the principle to, is learning to do the right things. Efficiency is learning to do the right things in the right way. And then, and then um, so effectiveness is learning to do the right things. Efficiency is learning to do the right things in the right way. I'm sorry at the right time and then if, and then excellence is learning to do the right things in the right way um, in the right time for the right and the right way well done good and faithful servant and then and then um, and then exaltation is learning to do the right things uh, at the right time and the right way for the right reasons and that's the glory of God and the well-being of others in the Lord so that that became a big dynamic in my life. That really changed learning. As one guy said, you can put sand and gravel all the time into a jar, but you got to put the big rocks in first. What are the big rocks in, in, your, in what your mission is calling for? And learning to get those things built in. Then learning to do them efficiently. Then you add the sand and the gravel. And then learning to do it with excellence. And then learning to do it for the right reasons. So all of that, they all four work together. Well, then and then so that uh, you know that became now how do i get that to other people well i began to understand that i used to think okay i'm going to teach people and then show them and then i looked in the bible and the bible said wait 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 just a minute here you got that backwards jesus said this he said all that you have seen and heard in me and then acts 1 says all that jesus began to do and teach. Now, I believe in verbal plenary inspiration. So I believe not only every word has been given to us by God, but the order of words are important. So Jesus kept saying, see, hear, do, teach. In other words, he would do it and then he would teach them. He would pray and they would say, Lord, teach us to pray. He would evangelize and then he would train, uh, teach them what to do. So I found out that the way that you... That the way that you uh, influence others is do it and then teach them and then go with them when they do it. So they can, uh, so that they, you take them with you, let them see you, you then teach them and then you go with them while they do it and you help them and evaluate where they can develop and grow. So that was, that's what I learned about the discipleship of leaders. So hopefully uh, that would be helpful. The other thing I wanted to mention is this, is one of the dynamics of Christian leadership is, I use a, another illustration in the book, is that you're not, a, you're not a rancher, you're a shepherd. Ranchers get behind
behind the herd and drive it. If you want to influence others, you get in front. The shepherd is in front. The shepherd doesn't take the staff and drive the sheep. The shepherd gets in front and the sheep follow him and know his voice. The reason he has the staff is one end rescues the sheep, the other end he uses to defend the sheep. And that's what I want to be is that kind of a leader who says, not you just simply go do this, but follow me. Then I'm going to hand it off to you. And then when you do it, you have others with you and they learn to follow you. And then you uh, do and teach in their life. It's like a relay race. When you're in the midst of running your 50 meters or 100 meters or whatever, the running itself is fairly straightforward. The real challenge comes when you have to hand off the baton to the next person or grab the baton from the guy who's running behind you. And uh, when I was in track and field, that was always the most difficult part of a relay race. And I think it's true in leadership as well. It's it's easy to be a producer without giving any mind to succession planning or or taking folks along with you and discipling others. But as soon as you as soon as you bring that into the picture, that's that's when the real rubber uh, meets the road. And that's where I think a lot of the principles in your book become extraordinarily helpful to us. And and speaking of a leader and his function within an organization in relationship to other people, you 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 draw a contrast between a position bearer and a position wearer. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the difference between those two things? Yeah, well, you look at the ordained offices of leadership in the church, and they, they have so many clues for us about leadership in general. And one of the clues is this, is in 1 Timothy 3, before we receive those uh, 17 qualifications for a leader that are listed, the first thing that says this is, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, it's not the aspiring that's the work. You're aspiring to the office of overseer, and the office of overseer that you're aspiring to is a work. In other words, it's not a title to wear, it's a work to do. The title simply designates those who have been recognized to do it. So a lot of people want to have a title of leadership, and then I got something to put on my resume or something to one day put on my obituary or something like that. Well, that's not the motivation of a Christian leader. The Christian leader is wanting, is, is desiring to do the work of a leader. Isn't it interesting when the Bible talks about supporting teaching elders, with uh, financial support, it says this. It says, if any elder, uh, it says that if any elder is doing his work, is doing the work of a job, it says this, let the elders who, uh, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So leadership is hard work. Here's what I like to say to people. Salvation is free. Discipleship costs. And leadership is going to cost you a lot more. The reason why we expect leaders to be advanced, one of the reasons why we expect leaders to be advanced in sanctification, and one of the reasons why we want them to be managers of their own household and, and have godly marriages is because leadership 
leadership is going to put pressure on those things. And that you want someone there who has the capital in their uh, in their life, in their marriage, and in their family, because it's going to cost in leadership. But they know how, they've got capital to draw from, and they know how to make it up when it does cost and how to rebuild that capital in the life of their marriage and their family if and when those moments cost. You know, for instance, I have a date night every night with my wife. It's now 46, seven years we've been doing this. And, um, and, but I can't get people not to die on my date night. I just can't say, okay, well, y'all can't, in my church, now, if you're dying that night, uh, I mean, you can't die that night because I've got a date night. No, but my wife is, you know, she knows that if the call of my leadership responsibilities invade that moment, she knows, number one, we've had a lot of those moments already. And number two, she knows I'm going to be back and I'm going to make it up. I'll rebuild it. And that's in our life because leadership is... Uh, it is a sacrifice. It does cost something. Therefore, you've got to be ready to replenish what it costs, and you've got to know how to do that. Yes, that replenishment is mission critical. It's at the heart of uh, what being a leader means, because if you if you can't put the oxygen mask on yourself when they drop from the ceiling of the airplane, you're not going to be able to help anybody else around you. And uh, and particularly uh, with with our wives, it's crucially important. That's why I, I appreciate. I'm going through licensure process right now in Calvary Presbytery, Doctor Reader, and I really appreciate the the questions that the men pose to me. Not so much the outline, you know, the book of Amos or something. I don't appreciate that question quite as much. But uh, <laughs> tongue in cheek, but <laughs> I do appreciate the question of Is your wife on board with you? pursuing the ministry, and that question being asked of me at every step of the way, under care, licensure, and ordination, and and what practices are you doing now to lay down good habits so that you can continue to replenish um, the relational capital uh, between you and your wife, and and care for her soul and spirit, and not neglect her and the children and yourself as you go into the ministry to serve uh, others. Now, you you said that leadership is hard work, and that it's going to demand a a lot more than even discipleship, and that that makes me think of the three most common traps that destroy Christian leaders. You give them as indolence, immorality, and insubordination. I think immorality is is one that we're all well acquainted with because that's the most high profile of the three. But when you talk about indolence and insubordination, what do you mean? Well, indolence, I just mean laziness. For instance, let's just talk about the pastoral leadership. I honestly know a lot of guys who maybe don't articulate it and wouldn't say it, but they kind of look at the ministry. You mean I'll get paid to come up with a talk every Sunday, and I get to go read, and I get to uh, go read, and and just— you know, it's kind of, and then once a week I got to do this. Or there's this mistaken notion of, that the pastoral ministry is a life of ease. Well, believe me, it's not. I've uh, I've been in it now for 40 plus years, and I can tell you that's not the case at all. And uh, but any leadership is hard. I have never yet. 
I have never yet met or read or studied an effective leader, an effective leader by common grace, that is an unbeliever who by common grace is an effective leader, or by transforming grace. I have never yet studied grace, and I've studied, you have no idea how many leaders I've tried to study, and I've got five that I have for my life as a pastor, five for my life as a man, and um, and I can just tell you that the men that I have studied and the leaders I have studied, um, men and women that are effective in leadership, none of them have, un, uh, none of them, let me put it this, let me put it the other way, they all have uncommon standards of life and ethics of work, all of them. Now, they also know how to make others not pay for that. In other words, it's not, I've got this standard of labor and work and leadership and it costs my family. No, they know how to do that. Have you noticed, for instance, in the ordination, in the ordination of elders, there are these 17 qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. And verses 2 through 3 give personal characteristics of, uh, of the elder in sanctification, the leader in sanctification. Verses 4 and 5 give the family qualifications of a leader. Verse 6 gives the church qualification of a leader. And verse 7 gives the reputation in the community qualification of a leader. Well, I think it's interesting the priority that's there. Personal, family, church, community, which teaches me there is to be a prioritized life. And if I work backwards, I'm not effective in the community if I'm not being fed and embedded in the church. And I'm not effective in the church if my family isn't where it needs to be. And I'm not effective where my family needs to be if I'm not uh, being personally fed by the Lord and uh, walking with him. So, so that while it is costly to minister and it costs something in, in leadership and and it's hard work. Uh, it's we pay the price of hard work, not make others pay the price. The way you articulate that is is not in, in, pietistic in any sense at all. Because though that that personal level is a starting point, it's always with with an eye toward. Um, toward influencing and benefiting your family, your church, and your broader community, and it's never just uh, kind of circling the wagons around your own uh, pietistic, um, personal, devotional life, like you said earlier. There's nothing in the Christian life that should drive us out into the wilderness in isolation from everybody else in order to somehow grow in isolation, which really isn't how Christianity works in the first place. Yeah, while there's time for uh, personal retreats and things, yeah, you can have a, you know, it's like one guy told me, he said, Harry, you need to learn how to come apart or you'll come apart. Yeah. And, uh, and I kind of remembered that. But, you, you know, you just said something that's really important. Uh, while there are meaningful times where I need to just have personal time with the Lord alone, you grow most in, in, two, in two environments. One is adversity. Uh, you very seldom grow in prosperity. I mean, if I can just get people to hold on to Jesus and Jesus hold on to them in prosperity, praise the Lord. But you do grow in adversity. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. So adversity is crucial in growth. And the other thing that's crucial in growth is community, that we grow together. That's why 
as you probably picked up from my book, I am I acknowledge discipleship is one is life on life, but I ask people to stop and think about this. Life on life, one to one discipleship, I believe, is for a short season or a significant reason. It's for a short season or a significant reason. The best way to disciple is in a small group. And the best small group is in the context of the large group, the church. So what you want is, uh, you. yes, there are times you take people aside for a season or a reason for one-on-one. But the best discipleship, Jesus worked with the 70, the 12, and the 3. Did he have some one-on-one time? Absolutely. But, that, but the main delivery system was in community. And so your family, your small group, and then all of that embodied in the church, the large group, is where, because when Jesus talks about giving uh, the discipleship commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, he says, what do you do with them? You baptize them. Well, what happens when you get baptized? Then the believer and the family are added to the church. The expectation is, is that discipleship is best delivered in community, and that includes the development of, of uh, the subset of discipleship, of leadership development and deployment. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, and I think in America we, we like to think that you can be a Marlboro Man Christian out on your uh, on your horse, riding out into the sunset by yourself, but we are, we are pack animals. We are meant to be together. Um, that's probably a crude way of putting it, calling us pack animals, but God has designed us to be in community with one another, exercising those gifts in community, and I think that relates to the two kinds of leadership that we see today that you identify in the book, thermometer leadership and thermostat leadership. Which ought the church to produce? And really, what what do these terms mean in the context of leadership? When I'm talking about thermometer leadership, I'm talking about a leader who has the unique, not unique, but has the ability to read the tea leaves, uh, put your finger in the air, wet it, and see which way the winds are blowing. And uh, or a thermometer gives you the temperature in the room, and uh, and they just kind of go with the temperature in the room. They go where the wind's blowing. They go where they see the trajectory of the culture and benefit from that. Uh, and then, uh, but a a a Christian leader is not a thermometer. I like to call a Christian leader a thermostat. A thermostat looks like a thermometer, but its purpose is not to tell you the temperature in the room. Its purpose is to set the temperature that changes the room. And it, and when we uh, great Christian leaders can stick the finger in the air, wet it, and find out where things are going, but instead of just following that trajectory, they can redirect the trajectory where it ought to be going. You know, you got examples like Daniel. My goodness, here's a man uh, that was a young boy, probably a junior high youth group age, and uh, is taken into captivity. And I don't know who his parents were, but they must have done a good job. And I know the power of the Holy Spirit was upon him. But all I can tell you is he, he was an effective leader for 80 years in 
in two empires and five different kings, uh, five different kingdoms in those two empires. And, um, and, and, and or a Joseph. Here's a Joseph. If, is he in a pit? He changes the pit. Is he in Potiphar's house? He changes that. Is he in a prison? He changes that. Is he in Pharaoh's palace? He changes that. Everywhere he goes, something changes in a direction that eventually saves a nation from which his own covenant people are saved and made a nation within that nation. So that's the kind of leaders that we're looking for, the Daniels and the Josephs and uh, and the Davids, who uh, certainly had his faltering, but what, wherever he went, uh, and, and wherever he went, he always accomplished that. He ultimately would accomplish that which the Lord. Is there a bear? The bear's done. Is there a lion? A lion's dead. Is there a giant? He's going to get slain. And um, because of his dependence upon the Lord and the Lord's strength within him. And that's what I think leaders are. They change everything around them to where it ought to be going by the grace of God, for the glory of God, and by the strength that only God supplies. And you give those three essential qualities of thermostat leadership, of character, content, and competency. I think it's it's clear to see what you mean by character and competency. What do you mean by content? Is that the mission of the leader and, and how he goes about pursuing it? Yeah, he knows his mission and he knows his stuff. You know, the illustration, I, I think it's in the book, I can't remember, but uh, not long ago, this uh, uh, this pilot, uh, what a what an amazing man. Uh, he gets into his, he gets into a jet and he's got a couple of hundred people on it and he's a commercial jet and they take off in New York and the, and he gets in the air, and the next thing you know, he's got two engines that's out. He radios back, and the guy tells him where to land. He looks over there and says, I can't land there. And then the uh, next thing you know, he um, he says, pick me up in the river. And so this guy, and believe me, I, I know pilots. I'm not a pilot, but I know pilots. And what he did with that jet to set it down, those things are not gliders. And he set it down in that river between two ferries and got everybody saved in 15 minutes. And he was the last guy out of the plane. Uh, I'll tell you, that was, I always tell people, I have one prejudice in my life that I know of. This is the only one, and nobody needs to write and ask me to repent of it because I'm not. Now, that one that one prejudice is, is when I get in an airplane, I turn to the left, I look in the cockpit, and I want to see no hair or gray hair. That's what I want to see. I don't want to ask, I don't want to ask that person, do you have a driver's license? Uh, we're going up 40,000 feet, and I want to know, but that guy in one minute and 48 seconds, uh, that's how much time he had to make that decision. Well, when he walked out of that plane, I saw he had hardly any hair and gray hair, and that did not, that did not, um, uh, that did not amaze me. He, he had the moral character to make that decision that he knew would be questioned, and he knew his stuff, and then he had the skills to deliver it, and that's what leaders need to have, is character for moral courage that's um, that's in, uh, invigorated by the power of the grace of God through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And then the content, they know their stuff. And then competencies, they have the skills by the grace of God to deliver it. Now, many people, Zach, um, most leadership books and conferences focus on competencies. I don't. And I don't for a reason. I know I can teach you leadership skills. And I know 
leadership works. But if you don't have the right character and the right content, then you will use that for your own purposes, back to that self-centeredness. You'll use it for your own purposes instead of motivation for God's glorification. It'll become manipulation for self-satisfaction. And that's what I want to get. I know guys that are much better preachers than me, guys that even know their theology, know their theology better than me. But everywhere they go, churches suffer. The, it, it, the issue is not their skills. The issue isn't even their theology. The problem is the character. So we major on character development. Then you tie to it the content. Now we're ready to give you competencies that can make a difference because we know you're going to take people where they ought to go for God's glory, not where you want them to go for your own uh, exaltation. And if I can give a little plug to seminary education, at least here at Greenville Seminary, one of our core values, and it's ranked pretty high on the list, is what we call experimental piety. And what that really means is just an experienced, lived out um, a, a piety or devotion to Christ in every area of life and developing that character, even in the context of the seminary classroom and alongside of other brothers with that same goal in mind to serve the Lord in the context of pastoral ministry. And of course, that's really honed and developed in the context of the local church and in personal devotions, but it can be encouraged and it should be encouraged by the seminary as well. And that leads me to what I think we'll close our podcast on today. And you have your book full of historical anecdotes and and personal anecdotes that are very helpful, that lodge themselves in the memory. And this one really captured my imagination and planted itself uh, there in my mind. You received a gift along with your diploma when you graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary South Campus. What was that gift that you were handed along with your diploma, and what does that token have to do with leadership? Sometimes I tell people that gift was more meaningful than my diploma because my diploma from Westminster is written in Latin, and I still don't know everything on that <laughs> diploma. But uh, so, so anyway, I, uh, I tell people that gift meant the world to me. It was a towel uh, with, the, uh, with my initials on it, and, uh, and when it was handed, my, uh, the dean of faculty said, you are now equipped uh, to wash feet. It's a towel, and that's what the— Leadership, you know, I talk about good leaders are in Christian leaders are servant leaders, shepherd leaders, and sacrificial leaders. And of course, our Savior told us that when he took the towel and he uh, knelt and did the work of a servant and a slave, and he washed the feet of the disciples. And that's, I think, that's absolutely crucial. You know, one guy said this uh, that I thought has never left me. He said, We all talk about wanting to be considered as servants until somebody treats us like one. One. And uh, but we don't need to wait for people to treat us like servants. Let's just go ahead and treat ourselves like servant servants, and let's be, let's be willing to wash feet. And um, and may I say to folks out there, whenever you see a, le- a Christian leader doing his job, he hasn't done it for you to pat him on the back. But it sure doesn't hurt to pat a pastor, an elder, a shepherd, a Christian employer, and a Christian um, a Christian statesman. Whenever you see people. Because they're going to take. Listen, the tallest nail get hit gets hit first. So whenever that they need that encouragement, whenever you can, because they're going to they're going to get hit many times by being faithful to Christ. So I, but but for but for us as leaders, we don't do it for the accolades. We need to do it because it's right, and we do it in the right way for the right reasons.
citizens, and that means we need to be servants. Our, our, our great crown awaits us. That's the way Paul ends it with Timothy. You have a crown awaiting you. We don't need the crown now. All we need is the towel now. Let's go wash some feet. I like that. Well, on that note, I think we'll close the podcast. Uh, That's as good a note as any. There are so many more things that we could cover about the book, even in this interview, but I want to leave some things out on the table for our listeners to pick up. And I always close my author interviews with a call to tole lege, y'all. Pick up the book and read. And uh, this is a book I would highly recommend, and especially for those of you who have benefited from Dr. Reader's work in the past, or maybe are new to Dr. Reader's work, pick up this book and and look through it, see if it, if, if it might be useful on the whole, or even just parts of it might be useful for use in your church context or in discipling a young man with some native leadership abilities that you'd like to see developed, or even a young man who doesn't seem to have leadership abilities, but you'd like to, you'd like to encourage in that direction. I think this book would be very helpful towards those ends. It's available wherever books are sold. It's uh, 3D Leadership, and it's published by Christian Focus Publications, uh, very close to Greenville Seminary. We appreciate those brothers and sisters very much. But Dr. Reeder, thank you again for joining me for this hour. This has been very helpful to me as we've reviewed the material I've read, and it's also been a delight to be with you. Thank you so much. And by the way, thank the Lord for Greenville uh, Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Uh, Give my regards to Dr. Piper and all of your faculty, board, and the students that are there. We praise God for what you're doing. Our own seminary, Birmingham Theological Seminary, is in the same accrediting agency with you. And uh, and so we enjoy being co-laborers with you, profiting from what you're doing, and praise the Lord for it. And I'm very excited to see what Ike is doing as the new president. At, uh, at Birmingham Theological Seminary, and hopefully we'll see even a closer partnership develop between the two institutions in the future. Looking forward to it. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.